0: This podcast is sponsored by What They Believe Series, a docu-series exploring faith through conversations. If your congregation would like to share your history and spirituality, go to whattheybelieveseries.com to find out how you can participate. Visit now to find new episodes and learn about supporting this project. The views and opinions expressed during Eye and the Triangle do not represent WKNC or the student media. Your dial is currently tuned to Eye and the Triangle at WKNC 88.1. Thanks for listening. I'm Aaron Kling with WKNC's eighty-eight point one, I on the triangle, and I'm currently speaking with Jen Neitzel, the Executive Director of the Educational Equity Institute. Hey Jen, how you doing?
1: Good, I'm fine. How are you?
0: I'm doing very well. Now, we're here to talk about the wealth gap in America and how that wealth gap impacts the educational system and how right. people develop and improve in their lives. What do you have to say
2: about that?
1: Well, I think that there are numerous issues going on with the wealth gap you know, in this country race and poverty are intertwined and have been since the beginning of our country. And the educational system plays into that because of the deep disparities in access to resources, high-quality educational experiences, and then also just the cultural divide between the white teachers, predominantly white female middle-class teachers that teach black children. And so there's an absolute need to reform the educational system to ensure that black children have better access to the same things that white children have so we can work to undo the wealth gap in this country.
0: And that wealth gap is primarily along racial and demographic lines?
1: It is. I mean, when you look at all the statistics with all the race and ethnicities that it doesn't matter what system in this country, it can be criminal justice, it can be health, it can be the workforce, any system in this country, there's always whites on top, and then always at the very bottom are black children and families. And that is inextricably tied to the racism that is endemic within our society.
0: And that racism isn't just a matter of people interacting with people. It's actually built into bureaucratic systems. It's built into the layout of cities. It's built into where individuals live and where they live often impacts how they're able to have opportunities.
1: Right, exactly. And so in my book, I talk about all of this, because I think it's really important. And I really have focused on addressing white people in particular, just because I think it's so incredibly important to fully understand the nature of racism in society. Because a lot of us, you know, I'm speaking as a white woman, a lot of us tend to believe that we live in a post-racial society, because, you know, we had a black president, all of these things that point to and, and say that I'm not an individual racist and that kind of stuff. But that's not really what I'm talking about in the book. I'm talking about structural racism with all these barriers that have been put in place over time, and they fed out of the economic system that we built with slavery. We really built the economic system in our country on the backs of Black people, and so now we've got all these systems where we have barriers and price, you know, redlining practices that really feed into the segregation that we have in this country that leads to segregated schools and inequality in the schools. So all of the systems are completely intertwined.
0: This is a really tough one, because even if individuals currently in power in our year 2020 are positively inclined towards certain racial demographics and don't carry a, that kind of bias or, or ignorance, Many of these people find themselves battling the ghosts of individuals that did actually have racist beliefs. These are so ingrained in the structure of our cities and and our educational systems and and our policies that a person can be shortchanged without anybody really actively doing anything. It's just the nature of the system.
1: That's correct, because what we tend to do in terms of addressing equity in any system, and really we're still focused in equality, which is just making sure that everybody has the same resources. And with equity, we're making sure that we can get the access to resources and supports that people need to level the playing field. And what we're doing and we continue to do is we continue to move the goalposts. So in education, the way that we have addressed equity and we continue to address equity is by putting in another literacy intervention. And that's going to make the achievement gap go away or another math intervention. And when that doesn't work, then we just put in another literacy intervention because we're not focused on disrupting the roots of the system that are ingrained within our racist society. And until we do that, nothing is going to change.
0: And what does disrupting this sort of system look like? It's certainly not pulling up flagstones and changing the facades of
1: buildings. Right. No, disrupting the system, when you're looking at the educational system and where the disparities exist, right? So the disparities exist with suspensions and expulsions. So black children are up to four times more likely to be suspended or expelled from school than a white child. And that controls for income. So it doesn't matter what income level the child is. If they're black, they're up to four times more likely to be suspended or expelled. And there are even more recent statistics that black girls are up to eight times more likely to be suspended or expelled than white girls. And then, you know, you have the over-identification for special education. Black children are more likely to be over-identified for special education and under-identified for gifted and talented programs. So those are the key disparities. And then we have to look, okay, so what are we going to do to disrupt those disparities. So, with suspension and expulsion, all of these things go back to change in policy and practices. And I think that, you know, there should be no suspension and expulsion policies. We really need to look at how children are identified for special ed and how they're identified for gifted and talented programs. So, those are policies, but we also need to change the practices. And this is going to take a real paradigm shift in the educational system. So, you know, we're really going to have to focus on promoting social emotional health of our children over academics because when you look at children black children are disproportionately living in poverty and deep poverty and if you live in poverty then you're more likely to be exposed to traumatic experiences so and that's both individual historical and racial trauma and so when you have those kids coming into school already behind academically because they have limited access to high quality early childhood experiences. They're already coming to the school behind academically. And then you add on the trauma that these children are experiencing, we have to emphasize the social emotional health of these children because they are getting suspended and expelled for their own trauma. Does that make sense?
0: Oh, it makes total sense. And these sort of disputes with authority figures last long beyond an individual's time in a... Uh, in middle school, elementary school, high school, and extends to how they interact with authority figures in the adult world.
1: Right. Yeah. And so once a child is suspended or expelled, they're more likely to be be subjected to repeated suspensions and expulsions because they've already been labeled bad, and they're just like, "Why try? I'm just going to get in trouble for really minor things, or I'm going to I'm going to get in trouble for my response to my own traumatic experiences." These kids, when these externalizing behaviors they're exhibiting in school are directly tied to their traumatic experiences, and we have a workforce who is not prepared to work with children who are experiencing trauma. And so that needs to change. I think that is one of the key issues in the educational system today. And so when you have that, and kids who are suspended or expelled are more likely to drop out of school, enter the juvenile justice system, and then go into the criminal justice system. So then we have this this cycle of not only multi-generational poverty, but multi-generational trauma, and then mass incarceration. And none of it is the fault of the black children and families in our society. It's the fault of the systems.
0: So expulsion is always viewed as this, this big final word in discipline in school. There is nothing past expulsion. It's the ultimate. And you recommend replacing it as this like big intimidation factor that encourages parents to, to try to come down on their kids and ensure their children are behaving correctly. What is the proper replacement? What's a gentler side?
1: when we're becoming early childhood educators, there's an emphasis on understanding child development that is not present in K-12 pre-service. So anyway, that gives me a lens for behavior management, and that's one of my primary areas. And when you're looking at behavior, all behavior is communication. And so in our current school system, we're focused on reacting to behaviors, controlling behaviors instead of understanding behaviors. And that's a key shift that needs to take place. And when we're in the, the place, to not react this can happen I mean you know I'm the mother of three children you know I was a teacher it's easy to take things personally it's easy to take children's behaviors personally but when we're in a place and we can stand back and say okay what is this child trying to communicate to me with this behavior we can respond in a more empathetic fashion instead of kicking kids out of class or calling the behavior specialist or suspending or expelling it's very reactive And so what we want to do is nurture these children. We want to guide their behaviors into more appropriate behaviors. And that doesn't mean that they can't be accountable for what they've done, but we're not punishing them. And that's a key difference that needs to take place, which is rampant in our K-12. And even in early childhood, we punish children. We don't guide them.
0: So you're saying punitive measures are just as educational as everything else taught.
1: Well, the punitive stuff is what needs to go. So the the punitive stuff is, you know, losing recess or having silent lunch or suspensions and expulsions. That's very punitive. It's just punishment. There's no teaching that occurs that comes out of that. And so what we really need to do instead of punishing children, especially children who are experiencing trauma, because they are not at fault for their experiences and they're just externalizing these behaviors, that are coping mechanisms that they've developed in response to their trauma. So why should we be punishing them for that? Yes, they can't do things like punch their friend or, you know, do things on the playground and stuff like that. They can learn that without being punished.
0: And this anger, it's not coming from nowhere. It usually has a source.
1: It's from the experiences had throughout their lives. And, you know, it's not specific to black. I think the entire system needs to change in terms of how we view social emotional health because, and I was just reading a report about this the other day, affluent schools, the social emotional health of these children needs to be addressed because of the anxiety, the depression, the extreme pressure to achieve and play into the notion of white advantage and advancement in our society. I've got three boys who are in predominantly white, affluent schools. And the emphasis there, the number of children who are experiencing anxiety is a direct response to the educational system. It's not good for anybody.
0: So you're pushing for a system that not only educates people in math, in social sciences, in and all the important aspects that people need to learn as they go into college and as they advance themselves, but also give them emotional intelligence, give them tools to deal with the world around them and how they perceive it.
1: Right. And I think that we're at a breaking point in the educational system in terms of how we're addressing the social-emotional health of our children, and that needs to be a primary emphasis, And you, but it's all on academics. I'm not saying academics are incredibly important, but so is the social-emotional health of our children.
0: Yes. I'm certain we can all agree with that.
1: Yes,
3: (laughs) I hope so.
0: (laughs) You were talking of structures of power and how they can influence an individual's development. Have you heard about machine learning and how that's factoring into a lot of public services systems?
1: I have not heard about that. Okay,
0: so this is actually a good chance to get your opinion on it. Machine learning is the acquisition of data. Google brings in an incredible amount of data, so does Facebook, all of uh, these sites that people regularly visit on a regular basis, and it uses that data to kind of create algorithms that select people for careers or select them for college programs or, or anything else that requires scanning a large group of population without having a human eye on it. Now, these have been found to be uh, disproportionately positive towards individuals of white skin and negative towards individuals of darker skin, primarily because a lot of their backgrounds are based on libraries of, of pictures and files that identify primarily white individuals and disregard anybody else because they don't really have intelligence for it. What are your thoughts on this?
1: Well, yeah, and that makes perfect sense to me. Now that you said it, I, you know, my my oldest son is a sophomore in high school, and he went through that kind of uh, programming to figure out, you know, what his career should be and all that kind of stuff. And it was highly accurate for him. But you no, know, the the issue that we have in our society in general, and including the educational system, is that the people that are making these programs. I would bet are predominantly white, middle class. So they're designing these programs with their, you know, their white is the norm mentality. And so if we're going to have equity in these types of programs in the educational system, we need to change who's in leadership positions because it's predominantly white people in charge making decisions about all of these things, these computer programs, the policies, the practices not even fully recognizing that, you know, they call it, we, what we refer to as whiteness, that our experience is the only experience, that everybody has that in society and that guides everything. And so it's not surprising to me that there are differences between black and white children with these programs, because my guess is that the people that are making these programs are white, middle class, and that's they're putting in their experience. So we need not, not only need to shift within the educational system with in terms of policies and practices, we need to shift who's in charge <laughs> in making these programs and who's m- making decisions about the policies and practices and have the people who are most affected by the disparities leading the work forward. Right. All of our systems are operating as intended. I mean, that's just the, the fact within our society. They were set up to perpetuate predominantly white male advantage. And so all of our systems are currently operating the way that they were set up and so all focused on maintaining white privilege and power and so until we grapple with that until we you know come to terms with the brutal history of our country and the reality and this you know as a white person and when I first started getting into this work there's this grieving process about oh my gosh this is my country. Because I had no idea for a long time, and it's just, you have to dive into the history to understand where we are so we can find the path forward.
0: And what is that history?
1: The history begins in 1619, when the first slaves arrived on our shores, and the dehumanization of an entire group of people that had to take place, and the way that we basically built the economy of our nation on the backs of black people. And the brutalities that occurred on these plantations, you know, what we like to do is say, oh, but, you know, with the Emancipation Proclamation, everything was fine and everything wasn't fine. And basically during Reconstruction in the South, even because the, the Union troops were still there, that black people had a lot of freedom. But then that stopped with Jim Crow and we entered this entire period of brutality within our country that we fully don't understand. And so we just see it as separate but equal, but the brutality that took place during that time period, and then, you know, we had the Civil Rights Act and Brown versus Board of Education, then we started thinking that we lived in a post-racial society. And so you, you often hear, like, why do we have to talk about slavery? Why do we have to talk about racism? We have to talk about it because it's still affecting all of our lives today.
0: This idea of a post-racial society and how that factors into the development of systems and development of bureaucracies that may negatively impact the lives of individuals. Is this done with malicious intent, or is it now just so ingrained that it just kind of happens passively?
1: I think it's a combination of the two. I think majority, it's just a lack of awareness. It's passively. But I think that there are people within the systems who are focused on upholding them. So I write about all of this in my upcoming book, Achieving Equity and Justice in Education, through the work of systems change. I talk about all of these things in there and more.
0: Fantastic. And where can we find that book?
1: That book, it's published through Lexington Books, but you can also buy it on Amazon.
0: That was Jen Neitzel, the Executive Director of the Educational Equity Institute. And I'm Aaron Kling with WKNC 88.1's Eye on the Triangle. Take it easy, people. Good afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle. Hello, ladies, and gentlemen, and all between. We just finished up talking with Jen Neitzel about bureaucratic inequalities in the American schooling system and what can be done to ensure that students of other races have a fair shake of good education. Afterwards, we're going to have a series of stories from the North Carolina News Service. Conservationists are concerned with shrinking biodiversity in NC wetlands, consumers demand stricter standards for vehicle emissions, and updates on the events surrounding senatorial hearings. Additionally, we will also be having a report on vertical farming in North Carolina, Let's get to it, people. It's Eye on the Triangle.
2: A group of college students are huddled around piles of LED lights at North Carolina State University's Horticulture Field Lab. They're part of a newly formed vertical farming club, using those LEDs to grow plants without any natural sunlight. This is Mark Watson. He's president of the club. Next to us sits a shipping container that on the outside looks like it could be a storage shed. But on the inside, it's been converted into a vertical farm. Fans drone circulating air from the outdoors. Shelving, piping, and electrical cables are attached to every available surface.
4: There's not a lot of room to walk around. The main three systems that we have in here are the irrigation, the lights, and the airflow systems.
2: Right now, there aren't any plants because the club is renovating the container. They normally grow leafy greens like lettuce. When the LED lights are turned on in place of sunshine, the room glows a vibrant purple. Watson hopes that the renovation will improve the growing process.
4: It'd be really cool if you could plant plants in there, wait a whole month, and then completely grown, mature plants would be in there.
2: Like the name suggests, Vertical farming is the practice of growing plants in vertically stacked layers. Many such farms, like this shipping container, are controlled environments. They allow growers to control the amount of light, water, and even air reaching the plants. Ricardo Hernandez, a researcher at NC State University, has been studying vertical farms for over a decade. He sees advantages in the budding technology. The vertical farming, the main benefit is control.
4: Uh, Also, you have a um, uniform defiable and predictable production because you know how much input you're giving the plants and you know how much they're going to give you know back obstacles still remain on the road to
2: widespread use
4: the power we control also comes with a huge challenge because if you switch the wrong switch on or you provided the wrong co2 concentration you can completely eliminate uh your crop um uh, we cannot produce all our food in vertical farms. You know, it would be very energy intensive.
2: Because of all the electricity used for running the lights and different machines, vertical farms are more expensive and leave a larger carbon footprint than field farming. However, as the technology behind the practice continues to evolve, Hernandez says it could be an asset to traditional farms.
4: Vertical farm can be used to provide plants to the field production. Uh, instead of growing a head of lettuce, you know, why don't you grow a lettuce transplant. So I think for North Carolina, the potential of using vertical farm to um, assist
2: the field growing conditions that are favorable here is, is huge. It might be a while before you eat anything grown vertically. Right now, the technology itself still needs time, energy, and maybe a little more LED light to, well, grow. In Raleigh, I'm Luke shealy
3: North Carolina's mountains and coasts are teeming with biodiversity that conservationists say is under threat from global warming. As ecosystems adapt to a changing climate, it's becoming harder to predict which species will survive and which won't. Mark Anderson directs conservation science at the Nature Conservancy and has spent decades trying to figure out how to preserve biodiversity. He says scientists now are shifting their focus from conserving individual species to conserving land.
2: We're placing a premium on protecting areas that will remain resilient into the future.
3: A growing body of research shows changes in animal movement and migration already are occurring amid warming temperatures and rising seas. But Anderson says the presence of coastal sands, limestone valleys, granite summits, and other geological characteristics provide clues to which areas will be natural strongholds in a changing climate. He says these resilient regions are likely to become future habitat for migrating species. Anderson says his team has pinpointed how much land needs to be conserved to support biodiversity in the climate change era.
2: We've laid out a map and a plan for how we could sustain diversity, but it involves protecting about a quarter of the U.S., and that's a huge amount of land.
3: In addition to storing massive amounts of carbon, Anderson says forests and grasslands also help keep waterways and air clean, noting that preserving land has benefits for humans as well. A new poll commissioned by the Union of Concerned Scientists finds 81 percent of Toyota vehicle owners believe the company should support more environmentally friendly air pollution standards. The findings come amid the automaker's decision, along with several other major car manufacturers, to join a 2019 lawsuit against the state of California and more than 20 other states that disagree with new regulations, prohibiting them from setting emission standards stronger than the federal government sense Matt George, whose research firm conducted the survey, says the more informed consumers were on Toyota's positions, the more their perception of the company changed. In terms of the perception of Toyota being a green and sustainable company that takes care to be environmentally friendly, at the outset of the poll, 90 percent of Toyota consumers would agree with that statement. At the end of the poll, after they found out more information, 55 percent agree. So that's a pretty significant drop. According to a report from Automotive Trends, emissions and fuel efficiency rates for Toyota cars and trucks declined from 2012 to 2017. Shannon baker Brandstetter is manager of Cars and Energy Policy for Consumer Reports. She says several major automakers have pressured the Trump administration to loosen emissions and fuel economy standards.
1: Automakers weren't quite expecting perhaps a full freeze, but they do want a loosening of the rules and they are in conflict with their buyers, we find overwhelmingly that consumers do value fuel economy and want to continue to see the improvement.
3: George says automakers' opposition on clean air policies will likely mean they lose younger buyers. He says of the 1,000 people surveyed, more than three quarters initially said they would definitely purchase a Toyota vehicle. After they learned more about Toyota's views on emissions standards, that number dropped to less than half.
5: The people who have yet
3: to build brand loyalty, probably with Toyota, this is probably their first vehicle purchase, they are the most likely to change based on this decision. So the consumer base that they're trying to grow now, they potentially are harming the most with their decision to support this particular lawsuit. Last week, the administration announced a revised version of the Safer Affordable Fuel Efficient Vehicles Rule, which would require automakers to boost fuel efficiency by 1.5%. Current rules mandate much higher fuel efficiency standards. For North Carolina News Service, I'm Nadia Romlagan.
5: The Public News Service Daily Newscast for January the 31st, 2020. I'm Mike Clifford. Reuters reporting the U.S. House passed two pieces of legislation on Thursday. They seek to rein in President Trump's ability to deploy U.S. forces to fight abroad Reuters adds the Democratic-led House voted nearly along party lines to pass one measure that would prohibit military action against Iran without congressional approval. It also voted to repeal the 2002 authorization for use of military force for the war in Iraq, which presidents have long used to justify a range of military actions. Meantime, President Trump signed the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement this week. It could have some impact on states like Maine, which is a neighbor to Canada.
6: While much of the new agreement is similar to the former treaty known as NAFTA, one big change is that Canadians can now buy up to 150 Canadian dollars worth of American goods online without paying duties or import taxes. This is much more than the 20 Canadian dollar limit allowed in NAFTA. Wade Merritt, president of the Maine International Trade Center, says this could be significant for Maine.
1: As a border state, we receive a lot of Canadian tourists in Maine. And this is something that we've been keeping an eye on for a while because there's a, a disparity between what Americans can purchase in Canada and bring back versus what Canadians can purchase in the United States and take back to their country. So we think that's a positive step forward.
6: By comparison, the United States limit for online shopping from other countries is $800. But this rule, known as de minimis shipment value levels, only applies to shipments. It doesn't change how much Canadians can buy on their visits to the U.S., an amount that increases if they're visiting for longer than 24 hours. I'm Laura Ross-Broutellum reporting.
5: Conservation groups speaking out against a move Thursday by the Trump administration to remove penalties for companies whose business activities, incidentally, kill birds.
6: The U.S. Interior Department is finalizing a change to the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, or MBTA, first announced two years ago. It removes penalties for bird deaths considered incidental take, even in cases of such gross negligence as a massive oil spill. Bob Dreher with Defenders of Wildlife says this will lead to many more bird deaths.
1: We already have evidence that businesses
0: and federal agencies have turned their backs on conservation of birds because of the administration's policy. This may accelerate that. You may see more and more businesses saying birds will be killed, but that's okay. Go ahead.
6: In the past, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act gave companies incentives to prevent bird deaths with proactive measures, whether it's placing nets over oil pits or making power lines and wind turbines more visible to birds. The administration says the changes would ease onerous restrictions on commercial activity and infrastructure projects. I'm Suzanne Potter. This
5: is PMS. The U.S. is urging Americans not to travel to China now amid the coronavirus outbreak. It's killed more than 200 people in China. State Department elevated its travel advisory to the highest level. Iowa lawmakers have been in session for about two weeks now. Advocates for people with disabilities hope they do not overlook their concerns. Expanding community-based care supports is one of the top priorities. Brooke Lovelace heads the Iowa Developmental Disabilities Council and says lawmakers can help people with disabilities in many ways.
1: Um, adequate funding um, the Medicaid program, um, funding um, to make sure that the children's
5: mental health system is adequate funding. Lovely says providing funding to eliminate the waiting list for services is a top priority as well. A task force charged with solving cases of missing and murdered Native Americans held its first meeting in Washington, D.C. this week. Here's Ros Brown.
6: The Trump administration announced the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Persons Initiative last year and placed coordinators in 11 U.S. attorney's offices to develop protocols for a better law enforcement response. Jolene Holgate coordinates the Missing and Murdered Dinner Relatives Initiative on the Navajo Nation. She leads forums about the resources available to help people when someone they know goes missing.
1: This has been happening since the time of colonization in the Southwest for us. That includes human trafficking, sexual violence, violence perpetrated against us by non-Native individuals.
5: The Navajo Nation includes New Mexico, Utah, and Arizona. Finally, Mark Richardson reporting. Healthy pension plans for public workers help the Arizona economy, not just the retirees who get the checks. That's according to the latest research.
0: Backers of Arizona's public pension system say their defined benefits retirement plans are doing well, although critics have claimed that some plans may be underfunded. The National Institute on Retirement Security says the benefits from these pension plans, including teachers, generated more than $7 billion in economic activity in Arizona in 2016, the most recent figures available. Julie Horwin with the Arizona Education Association Retired agrees they're helping to keep the economy strong.
6: Pensions
1: are not just. an entitlement given to people who are older. They're actually one of the chief economic engines that drives Arizona. Without those pensions, our economy would suffer a great deal.
0: One example of criticism was a recent op-ed by the research group Arizona Chamber Foundation. It warned that local and state governments are regularly having to increase their pension plan contributions, suggesting this could eventually lead to solvency problems.
5: Despite claims that public pensions drain state and local coffers, supporters say only about one-quarter of contributions to Arizona pensions are from employers. I'm Mike Clifford. Thanks for wrapping up your week with Public News Service. We are a member analyst who supported, and we're online at publicnewsservice.org.
0: That's it for Eye on the Triangle, everyone. Always nice to bring in the news. Thank you to our live audience who tuned in to hear our sets. It means a lot to us all here, and we're always happy to hear from you as well. That's right, if you have any burning questions or powerful opinions, hit us up at publicaffairs at wknc.org. We are also accepting applicants if you'd like to become a part of the Eye in the Triangle team. Tonight's episode of Eye in the Triangle can be enjoyed in a podcast format through Transistor and through WKNC's Twitter feed. Our opening music for tonight was Safe Sacks by Texas Radio Fish. Copyright 2019, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, 3.0 license. Stay tuned for your usual programming of amazing indie music, and we'll see you all again next time. Take care now.